going to be uh, more exciting for the high schoolers, especially you guys who have got your licenses now, rather than junior hires, but maybe it might. I want you to imagine that you go home tonight and your parents tell you that they are going to fund you to do a cross-country road trip across the United States. So they give you money for gas, they give you a car that you can use, they give you extra money to enjoy various stops, and they even say they're going to pay for you to have Airbnbs all the way across the states. And not only that, is that they're not even going to go with you. They're going to allow you to take your closest friends with you, fill up the car, and go away for about a week. So I feel like some of you guys are like already smiling, even because you're terrified. Some of you are like, no, I do not like this. <laughs> but for those of you who would like this, or if you would like it more, if your parents were in the car with you, then imagine your parents were in the car with you, okay? If you are excited about that, if you are grateful for that, then you want to be responsible for that by actually being able to plan that trip well. Even if your parents are coming with you, imagine that they are giving you responsibility to plan for this trip. So you start deciding where you want to stop, and you start deciding what you want to do, and you start planning about the things you want to talk about and the discussions you want to have on the road. You also start preparing other stuff you need, like your clothes and your toiletries and music and maybe some games for when you're staying at the Airbnbs. But that doesn't seem to be enough. Because if you really want to steward that trip well, if you really want to make the most of the time, you want to guarantee that you will be prepared if potential worst-case scenarios happen. So you start thinking outside the box, and you start thinking, what are the best ways that I could plan for this? Things that I normally wouldn't plan. And I think one of those things is actually the fact that since you are going to be in a car and the car is going to be essential for the trip, that you decide the best way to prepare is to start learning some of the very basics of how a car works. You start thinking, what if we get stuck in Arizona? We can't call anyone because we're in the middle of the desert. So maybe it'd be good to know the basics of how to change a flat tire. Or maybe it would be good to figure out how the basics of an engine and a transmission work so that if it gets too hot, I'll be able to cool it down. Or maybe you want to know how to put windshield wiper fluid into it. Or, as I've experienced with my beat-up car, know how power steering fluid gets in the power steering. So all of a sudden, when you're making a sharp turn, you don't have to absolutely crank it to try and make any simple turn. And the reason you want to do that is because if you believe the trip is important and you want to make it worthwhile, then knowing how a car works might be a really good way to plan for it. And when we're talking about the series we're in now, How to Change, I want you to know something, how something works for the trip that you are taking. And the trip is just your life. The Bible explains your life as one long road that is eventually leading to heaven. And even though God has provided absolutely everything you need in Christ, God has still called us to have a responsibility to use our life well and to use it for God's glory. And if you really want to prepare well, there is one essential thing in your life that you need to know how it works. And that thing is you. You need to know how you work. What I mean is you need to know what's going on in your heart, how God has designed you, how God has made you, so you know how you work and how you function. And when the Bible talks about that, when the Bible talks about how you work, the Bible is talking about 
your heart. That's what we're getting into today. We're going to talk about the heart. And we're going to go kind of all over the Bible, hence the cheats that I gave you. But if you want one verse that could sum up this whole idea, the best verse is probably Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. And it says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, and here's the key, for from it flow the springs of life. Many of you probably know that verse. And what it's explaining is that you are your heart. You are your heart. Your heart is who you are. Who you are is your soul, your core. Last week in Romans 6, we called it your nature. Who you are inside of you is who you are before God. And the Bible explains how important this is in the fact that the Bible mentions the heart over a thousand times. It's one of the most used words in the whole Bible because it's important. Your heart is where your life comes from. And you know it's important every time you've ever asked, why did I do that? Or why did I think that? Or why do I feel this way? You are actually proving how important the heart is when you ask those questions. And that actually gives us another reason why it's important to know the heart and why the Bible talks about the heart so much. And that is the fact that the heart is complex. In the same way that you could spend the rest of your life understanding how different cars work, you will spend the rest of your life knowing more and more, not only about the heart biblically, but about your heart personally. But if we're going to be able to take that journey and if we're going to be able to understand how to change, we want to at least start with the basics. And the basic way that the heart works is that you could break it down to three different categories, that your heart does three different things. And that is your heart has a mind, your heart has desires, and your heart has a will. Mind, desires, and will. And I want to walk through each one of those three things very briefly. And so the first one of those things, the first way your heart works, is that your heart thinks. Your heart thinks. Now, in the Bible... The brain is never mentioned, but it talks about the heart as if it were a brain. And the reason isn't because people in the Bible were way behind scientifically. It's because God is making a point that your thinking is connected to everything else because your mind is part of your soul. Your mind and your thinking is part of the depth of who you are. When the psalmist in Psalm 139.23 tells God, search my heart and know my thoughts, he's explaining that my heart, who I am, and my thoughts are the same thing. My heart and my thoughts are the center of who I am. So the mind of my heart, it learns information, it processes data, and then it creates a worldview. The worldview that I live in every day. The thinking heart reasons. It's involved in reasoning. In Jeremiah 24, 7, Jeremiah explains to Israel that God is going to give his people a heart to know that I am the Lord. And that doesn't just mean to have a relationship with God. What Jeremiah is talking about is that God's people will know it's reasonable. It's logical. They will know that it makes sense to have a relationship with God. Because God made our hearts to receive information to know that only God provides the right information to make sense of the world. In Proverbs 21.11, it says, He who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. 
So the heart thinks about things and then determines what is valuable. You make sense in your heart, and so you learn to make sense of the world around you. Because your thinking is going to inform life what you consider valuable and what you consider worthless. And you need to process a lot of information, both new information and information that you already have. And that means that your heart, the thinking heart, also reflects. It goes over things over and over. In Psalm 49, the psalmist says, The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. Which means I'm only going to really know things if I meditate, if I reflect If I chew on information like a cow chews on cud, the more I go over it, the more truth I receive. And that also means that the thinking heart is involved in memory. It remembers things. In Luke chapter 2, verse 19, Mary, who's Jesus' mother, says that she treasured up all the events of Jesus' birth and pondered them in her heart. Which really proves the point that the thinking heart uses memory to continually shape our worldview. And not only that, but it actually shows that the things that you remember show the things that you think about and the things that you find important. That's why lots of places in the Bible, it explains that the things you care about are written on your heart. And that actually leads to the second way that the heart works. The heart thinks, and secondly, the heart desires. The heart desires. One of my theology professors in seminary used to say that our heart is a wanter, which means your heart is designed to want things. Your heart longs for certain things. It is attracted to certain things. And the Bible explains that our hearts have desires. And our desires are the things we treasure. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You are the thing you want most. Because the heart wants things and shapes its life around the things it wants. Another way the Bible describes that same thing is saying that your heart has an appetite. That your heart is always hungry. And if you think about it, like when you're hungry, you aren't just saying information processing, I need food. That's talking about something that you want. You're hungry for particular kinds of food. Which points to why wanting in the heart is so important because it shows that you want to be satisfied. You want to be complete. And the way you are now is never satisfied or never complete. Because we were never meant to be satisfied or completed by something else. Just the fact that you want things proves something. That God is ultimately the only thing that's supposed to satisfy our hearts. And we're designed to want things that we would continually chase after God. God who would complete us. Think about lots of the normal things that people normally want. You want companionship. You want security, encouragement, happiness, comfort, satisfaction. Those are all things that are worth wanting. But the fact is that any of those things can be good or they can be bad depending on what they receive depending on how they want to be satisfied, depending on the object of the wanting. The problem we actually have is we don't always know exactly what we want. But one of the ways that the heart informs us of what we want is through our emotions. Your emotions actually reveal what you want. There's a gentleman that I read his book. Uh, His name is Craig Troxell. He wrote a book called With All Your Heart. And I read that book just to prepare for this sermon. 
And I'll be quoting from him a lot in this sermon. But this is one thing that he said. Our feelings betray our desires and their intensity. Our hearts betray our desires and their intensity. And that means your emotions will prove what you want and how bad you want them. Your emotions will reveal what you value and what you're willing to do or who you're willing to be in order to get them. And our emotions actually also show how our thinking and our desires get connected with each other. Another guy named Winston T. Smith said this, When we encounter things we consider good, we experience emotions that feel good. Kind of obvious. For example, the blessings of life stir up feelings like happiness, joy, and contentment. But when we encounter things we consider bad, we experience emotions that feel bad, like sadness, grief, and anger. Now that's obvious, but he's trying to make the point. Your emotions end up shaping a large part of who you are and the decisions you make. And that's actually the third way that the heart works. The heart thinks, it desires, and thirdly, the heart wills. The heart wills. Everything you do ends up starting in the heart. Christ says that in Matthew 12, 34, when he's talking about why the Pharisees don't do what God wants, which is because they don't want God. And so he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that means your thinking and your wanting affects your choosing what you choose. That's what the will of the heart is. It is the place where we make choices. The will of our hearts makes choices that create our actions, behavior, attitude, reactions, and responses. And the choices you make in your life prove what you actually are dedicated to. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, a godly woman named Hannah is praying in thankfulness to God, and she says, My heart exalts in the Lord. That's something inside, something she knows and something she desires. And then she says, Therefore, my mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in my salvation. She knew God, so she loved God. And because she knew and loved God, she chose God and chose actions that would glorify God. Another example is a man named Ezra who was called to help God's people be led away from their exile and back into the land God promised. And it says in Ezra 7.10 that Ezra devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord. That devoted is actually directly connected to the Hebrew word for the heart. Which means since Ezra knew God and loved God, he was devoted to God by reading about God and then helping God's people. What you do in your life and the choices you make prove what you want most. And even the fact that you don't make a choice is in another way a choice in itself. The things you don't do, you do because you choose not to do them. You might want to get good grades, but you lack study. And the fact that you lack study reveals you don't actually want as good grades as you think you do. It even starts as early as when you wake up in the morning and your alarm clock goes off and you decide to get out of bed right away or to wait five more minutes and put the snooze on. As soon as you begin your life, your life is being shaped by the choices you make. And even if that's not 100% true for you, the fact is your life is also shaped by choices other people have made. And that's actually supposed to be a normal part of life. God is filling our life with choices. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, God says, I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Every day, our hearts are asked to choose God, which is life, or ignore God, which is death. And God says that his people understand what is the right choice. In Isaiah 7, 15, he says, my servant knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. And that means God has designed our hearts in a way that our hearts don't wander into good or evil. Every day our hearts choose either good or bad. The point of knowing how your heart works is to understand how you live your life, which is you think, you want, and you choose. And what God has explained in his word very clearly is we are supposed to think the way God thinks, We're supposed to want what God wants, and we're supposed to choose what God calls us to choose. I think every person in this room understands the main problem we have here, which is the fact that that doesn't happen. We don't think, want, or choose what God wants. And the problem, we would say, is sin. But if we're being really specific, what we're talking about, what's wrong with the heart, is that it's disordered. And that's the second thing we're going to talk about, that the heart is disordered. I can change it this time. There we go. The disordered heart. I think all of you guys knew that this verse was coming at some point. Jeremiah 17, 9, right? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, you guys have probably had that verse thrown in your face so many times to talk about the fact that our heart has sin in it. But if you listen really closely to what Jeremiah is saying, He's not just making a blanket statement, your heart is evil. He's saying something more complex. What he's saying is this. The reason our hearts are deceitful, which means they don't always know what's going on. And the fact that they're sick, that they don't have a health that God wanted them to have, means that you can't understand your heart. The heart is confusing. It is out of order. It should work a certain way, and it doesn't always work that way. And the reason is because the God who puts all things in order is disconnected with us because of sin. Our hearts are out of order because we're not a part of God's order. We think things we don't understand. We desire things, and we don't know why. And we have emotions. We don't know where they came from. And we make choices, and we wonder why we made those choices. And the reason is because we are spiritually unaware of the disorder in our hearts. You'll actually get a perfect picture of this if you go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Eve, before Satan tempted her, had every part of the world in perfect order. And then suddenly Satan as a snake comes along and tells her to make one choice. And as she makes that one choice, you can see how absolutely everything goes wrong. In Genesis chapter 3, 6, it says, when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, Which right there, that's thinking, and that's wrong thinking. It was not good for food. God said it was not. Then she says, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one rise. Again, that's a desire, but it's a wrong desire. And both of those things inevitably lead to the third, which is this. She took of its fruit, and she ate it. The wrong thinking and the wrong desires immediately resulted in the wrong choice. And every human being has that at its new normal. 
We are born into this world with the exact same problem. Disordered hearts that think, desire, and choose wrongly. But let's be specific. Let's go first to thinking. How is the heart disordered in thinking? Proverbs 28, 26 says this. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. And the word mind in the Hebrew is the same word for heart. So the thinking of your heart is foolish as a new normal. And the reason is because it trusts in itself. The problem is we're prideful. We think that we are right. We're convinced in our own rights and our own self-justification. We think we're accurate in so many of our interpretations. We don't like input and perspective or wisdom from anyone else if it's going to affect our lives. We have pride. And we especially don't like it when God starts asking us to live in a certain way. Now, that doesn't mean every single thing you've ever thought is evil in the way you think it means. In Romans chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says that the law is written on sinners' hearts and our conscience also bears witness. That means since we've been designed after the image of God, there's all sorts of truths in God's reality that are swimming around in there all the time. But then Paul mentions the next thing in Romans 2. He says we have conflicting thoughts that accuse or excuse us. The heart is confused because it doesn't know how to deal with the truths that it does have. We know certain things, but we deny them or we change them or we can't make sense out of them because we've disconnected them from God. Or we might think they're right, but we don't want them to be right because they make us wrong. The heart is confused about truth every single day. A biblical counselor named J. Adams said this, because of Adam's sin and because of our own sin, human beings don't think straight. Human thought reverses God's thought. We don't connect truth to God, and so we don't think rightly. That's why God explains in Genesis 6, when he's going to flood the whole world, he explains why. Because the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was evil continually. What he's explaining is that everyone on earth, except for Noah and his family, wanted something else instead of God. That's what it means to have a heart that thinks in evil terms. And Jesus explains in Matthew 15, 19, that nothing has changed. Because even Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts. Craig Troxell again says this, all of our knowledge has an agenda because the mind is always interpreting and nothing is safe from the heart's twisted interpretations. That's how a disordered heart thinks wrongly. But not only that, the disordered heart also has disordered desires. It's disordered in what it wants. Winston Smith says this, Emotions can seem as unpredictable as the wind, sometimes gentle and comforting, sometimes stormy and threatening, and apparently beyond your control. Ask yourself the question, have you ever woken up one day or been in a certain situation and you felt a certain way and you had no idea why? Totally been there. There's a reason why our emotions seem unpredictable because it's part of the broken state of our hearts. We were designed to respond to life in a certain way based on wanting certain things. And because we don't want those certain things and we don't know certain things, we respond to life in unpredictable ways. Here's the point. We want satisfaction now 
in the wrong ways. And we look for satisfaction in the wrong places. And that means we don't respond appropriately and we respond with unpredictable intensity. We want the wrong things and we want them a lot. The same word that's used for desire in the Bible, when it's talking about wanting something bad, it uses the word coveting or lusting. Both of those words just mean wanting, but it means wanting wrong things. Because desire that wants what cannot satisfy or what it cannot get becomes a different kind of desire entirely. In Ephesians 4.22, Paul says that we've been corrupted through deceitful desires. The fact that we want wrong things mean there's something wrong about us. And the reason is because we're deceived by lies. And that means we ruin all sorts of things in our life. Often that can be as simple as just doing things just because of emotions or because of things we want. Again, Craig Troxell says, people who are driven by raw desire are compelled to do what they would never ever do in their right mind because our selfishness routinely overrides what we know is sane. We have unpredictable and unthinking emotions and they powerfully control so much of our lives. Ed Welch says it this way, the heart wants what it wants when it wants it. And it doesn't want God setting limits or providing direction. The disordered heart is obsessed with satisfaction but doesn't want it from God. That's exactly what idolatry is. Tim Keller, another pastor, describes idols this way. An idol is anything central or essential in your life that if you lost it, life would hardly seem worth living. An idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God and anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. The problem is we want those things all the time. So much that John Calvin once described our hearts as idol factories. We are pumping out idols all the time because we constantly want satisfaction, but we don't want God. And that happens in so much intensity and confusion that sometimes we can even want the right things. But the problem with a disordered heart is that even good things become wrong things because we make them the best things. And that means that even when we choose good things, we're often choosing wrongly. And that's the third way that the heart is disordered, not just in thinking or desiring, but also in its will, in the choosing when thinking and desires are out of order, our decision-making also gets weird. In Romans chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says, You once presented your members to as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which led to more lawlessness. Which means we can't help but waking up in the morning and naturally presenting ourselves before ourselves, which is wrong. And so all of our decisions end up being wrong. Every time we abandon God, we end up choosing an idol. Paul explains that this was the normal state of the world. And even in the Old Testament, in places like 2 Kings, the state of the people of Israel was that they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God, and they made for themselves metal images. That's 2 Kings chapter 17. And it might seem like we don't wake up in the morning and make golden calves, but every time we make choices without wanting or thinking about God, we are in effect making golden calves. Every time we refuse God's rules for God's glory, We end up creating something that we love better than God. And we end up choosing it because we want it more than God. And again, the problem is that we're totally unaware of this. It happens all the time and we don't notice it. 
Even in unbelievers, it can seem like they often make right choices or they have good motives. And that's not necessarily wrong. But the fact is that the wrong motives, the wrong information, and the wrong desires end up affecting the rightness of a decision. Because we end up picking other things that we want meaning, purpose, lasting joy, and satisfaction from. And because they never can give it, the decision itself ends up becoming wrong. In Proverbs chapter 19, verse 2, the proverb uh, writer writes, Desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. The problem is, in everything we do before we know Christ, we end up having either wrong thinking, wrong desires, or the wrong choice. Those things end up never lining up perfectly. Because we don't know God, so our decisions lead to choices that put us in all sorts of messes. This is what Jesus' brother, actually, in the New Testament, dealt with in his church. Because he says in James chapter 4, You desire and do not have, so you murder. Wrong desire, wrong choice. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Wrong desire, wrong choice. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We choose evil because we never want God. Now the question we're asking, because we're talking about how to change, is how does this change? And in the same way that sin might be the obvious answer for why the heart is wrong, God is the obvious answer to how the heart becomes right. So what we're asking now is what God does to our hearts so that we can function properly. And the way that God promises restoration in the heart is this. He says he's going to give us a new heart. God is going to give us a new heart. Probably the most famous place that God talks about this and promises this in the Bible is in Ezekiel 36. Specifically in Ezekiel 36 verse 26. God promises his people will have a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. You guys remember last week when we were studying Romans 6 and Christ gives us a new nature? That's another way of saying we have a new heart. We have a heart that still wants, it still thinks, it still makes decisions. But for the first time ever, it can do it rightly. And Ezekiel describes that as having a hard heart that turns into a flesh heart. Our sinful hearts were like stone, they were hard. Think Pharaoh in Exodus when his heart was hardened towards the people of Israel. It's explaining a heart that's incapable of knowing or desiring or choosing God. That's a heart of stone. But God has taken out that heart and now he's put in his people a heart of flesh. It means a heart that is alive. It's responsive. It can actually do what God wants it to do. It can know God, desire God, and choose God's will over our own will. And God invites us to have that new heart. Because he says in Jeremiah 29, 13, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is an invitation to anyone who understands the brokenness and disorder of their heart to come to God and to have a new heart. And God explains that not only will he give you a new heart, but he will help you manage your heart. That you will keep it working properly. And the way the Bible describes that is as keeping your heart. Keeping your heart. You guys remember again the very first verse I gave you. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23. Which says this. 
Guard your heart with all diligence. Or, your translation might say, watch over your heart or keep your heart. The literal Hebrew translation of that is to keep your heart with all keeping. God is explaining, we used to be unaware of how our heart worked and what was going on. And we have a new heart now, but also new eyes to see our new heart. So we can observe it, watch it, understand it, and start being a detective of our own heart. And you need to do that if you want to grow in godliness. You need to exercise the new heart that God has given you. Craig Troxell again says, keeping your heart involves two things, preserving and protecting. You could think of your heart like a garden. You make choices every single day, basic choices to keep a garden going. If you want to preserve your garden, you fill it with water. You start tending and cutting leaves away that are rotting. You start giving it fertilizer so it continues to grow. You preserve the garden. But you also protect the garden. There's birds that might try to eat your fruit. There's hummingbirds that might get a little too excited with some of the shiny fruits that are growing on it. There's pests and there's weeds and there's insects that you want to take out so your heart continues to grow. And your heart works the exact same way. You are preserving and protecting your heart when you are keeping your heart. You are looking at what you do and why you do it. What you think, what you want, and what you choose. And you are slowly learning as a Christian to keep your heart healthy so you can grow in godliness. So finally, let's go through all of those categories again to see some very, very basic ways you can keep your heart in thinking, wanting, and choosing. So first is thinking. This is how the new heart has new thinking. A guy named Rankin Duncan said this, God's renewal imparts every part of our human personality, our desires, our dreams, and our emotions. But we are changed most profoundly through the portal of our minds. And I think that's true. The thinking of your heart ends up affecting every other part of your heart. And if you want to think properly, you need to stop thinking the way you always have and start thinking the way God thinks. Isaiah chapter 55, 8, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. God has invited us to see how his thoughts are better than our thoughts. And he's so invested in having you know how he thinks that he has given you an entire book full of the perfect thoughts of God. Peter talks about this when he explains in 1 Peter 1.21. No prophecy, which means anything written in scripture, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It's not because of what man wanted. But it's written to show what God wants. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Which means God sent his spirit to men to write down God's thoughts so you could think like God. And he made sure they were exactly what he wanted. So you can know with pinpoint accuracy that you can trust how God thinks. Because only God puts all of reality into order properly. The next part of what you end up doing, I hope, is obvious. Because you need to actually think those thoughts. You need to actually think God's thoughts that you've been given. Paul says in Philippians 4.8, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about them. 
God has given you a whole book full of what's honorable and noble and good and right. And he wants you to actually think about those things. He wants you to use your memory. He wants you to use your ability to reflect. He wants you to process the data he's given you. And be overwhelmed that you can see reality correctly for the first time. And then he wants you to actually think those thoughts when you go out into the world. The way the Bible talks about that, thinking actively in the world, is by the word testing. God wants you to test in this world. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Learning God's thoughts means approving and disapproving what's right and wrong in this world. It means going out into the world and actually thinking like God and being able to cut through the confusion with real clarity. And you can see that his direction always leads to blessing and satisfaction. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test everything and then hold fast to what is good. You need to hold fast to it because this world is going to try and get you to try and do your thinking for you. This world is full of thoughts that are so against God. And as a believer, you have the ability to not only think God's thoughts, but to hold on to them even when the world's thinking seems to be so clear but it's actually built on completely shaky ground and completely untrustable foundations. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.14 that through God's resources, you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves that are carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You don't need to be someone anymore who's like they're stuck in the ocean in the middle of a storm. God has given you the most solid of boats to weather that storm. And that is his thoughts. So you can think like he does. And ultimately, God is not telling you to think perfectly like him. We never will be able to until heaven. God wants you to start by thinking one thing. I can believe and trust God's thoughts. That's why Romans 10 verse 8 says, With the heart one believes and is justified. There's one thought you need to start with. God can save me. God can save me and change my thinking through Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is enough to be right with God. That is enough to exercise a new heart. And that is enough to have all of your other thoughts slowly start to come into conformity with God. That's how your new heart can have new thinking. Let's do the second one. Because the new heart also not only has new thinking, but new desires. Ultimately, the biggest thing that changed in a new heart is that your number one desire becomes God. But as a result of that, God also explains that that new great thought, your new first desire, ends up changing all of your other desires. Paul says in Galatians 5.24, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. As you now love God, God tells you what to love and what not to love, and he slowly starts changing those other desires. What that inevitably means is the very first thing you need to work on is continue to strengthen that first desire. 
You need to continually seek after wanting God more than anything else. The psalmist explains that in Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2, when he says this, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The first thing you need to do is have an appetite for God and have an appetite for godly things. You need to hunger after God. You need to keep yourselves hungry for what he loves. That's why the word of God is explained in the Bible, described as rich food, solid food, and spiritual milk. Through God's word, his truths will keep your heart healthy because the Bible is continually showing us that only God can satisfy. And ultimately, that doesn't just mean coming to his word, but constantly going back to Christ. Because Christ describes himself in the same way. In John chapter 6 and 4 alone, he describes himself as true food and drink, living water, bread from heaven, and the bread of life. Because Jesus wants to remind you that if you keep going to him, you will be satisfied by him. That is the promise that Jesus makes. And ultimately, if you want to start that process, going to God and going to his word to be satisfied, and you want to know how you're doing, just look at your emotions. Your emotions will reveal what you want, and they will reveal how you can change. Because the reality is Christians still get angry. Christians still get lonely. Christians still get anxious. Christians still get scared. But the reality is with a new heart, God doesn't just give you positive emotions all the time. But what he does is he changes your emotions. You can respond to the right things in the right ways. Winston Smith says this, the more our hearts and values are aligned with God's, then the more we experience emotions that reflect what God wants, that reflect God's perspective on what's happening in and around us, which means you can want the right things and think the right things and choose the right things based on this alone, that you want to glorify God. That ends up changing everything else. It makes you be a person who can be angry and not sin. According to Ephesians 4, it can make you someone who can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's Romans chapter 12. You can be confident that you can grow because Christ has promised us that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Matthew chapter 5. You have the ability to discipline your desires by looking to God and trusting that only he can satisfy And ultimately, a hunger for God will explain to you the one thing that you want to know more than anything else, which is this, what love is. God has explained that he is love and that he is a love that satisfies. When a young man came to Jesus in Mark chapter 12, he asked, God, what are the two most important commandments? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. Above all these, these are the greatest commandments. Christ wasn't just saying two more commandments for the sake of putting everything in perspective. He was explaining that there's a connection between those two commandments. If you love God, God will help you to love his people. He will help you to love who is unlovely because you know that in God's infinite love, he loved us when we were unlovely. And by trusting that he can do that, that he can help us love properly, we'll be able to really live a life that satisfies. 
That's how a new heart has new desires. So a new heart has new thinking, and it has new desires, and it has the third thing as well, which is that the new heart has a new will. The new heart has a new will. The problem with our hearts is that they were soft towards sin, and then they were hard towards God. Now with the new heart, that has reversed. Now you have a heart that is soft towards God, but the heart is hard towards sin. And it's not automatically. It's not that it never, ever chooses the wrong things ever again, but it's this. You have now been invited into the process of strengthening your heart. When the Bible talks about strengthening your heart, it is strengthening your will, strengthening the part of you that can finally make the right choices for the right reasons. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, he's not saying I can fly. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that I can now do whatever God wants me to do. I can choose whatever God wants me to choose because of this. He strengthened my will. The part of my heart that can choose can finally choose the right things. Your will is not automatically this way. It takes a whole lifetime to strengthen a heart that can always choose the right things. It's like working out. You don't go into the gym, have one session, and suddenly you come up an absolute beefcake. It's not the way it works. I love that you laughed that I said beefcake. Your muscles work by the fact that you constantly work on them. They get sore, muscles tear, and then they grow back stronger than before. That's the same way your heart works. The more right choices you make, the stronger your will is. But past that, there's another way your wills become stronger, which is this. That the more you choose right, the more you receive the benefits that come from God, from a life that chooses rightly. And it takes a whole life of many right choices to have many right benefits. And this is what this fundamentally means. And please, if you've ignored everything so far, at least listen to this. When you begin the Christian life and you've lived a whole pattern of your whole life being after sin, you are going to need to start strengthening your will by sometimes choosing to do the right thing even when you don't want to. You're going to have to choose to obey even when you don't know exactly why and you don't exactly want to. That's exactly what Christ is talking about in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out and throw it away. What Christ is saying is there's going to be lots of opportunities in your life where you don't want to do the right thing. But here's the point. Wrong choices lead to death. And so many of our wrong choices have already led to all sorts of messes in our life. And so one of the first things you might need to do is start making some really hard choices stop sin in your life you might need to get rid of your smartphone because you're struggling with gossip or you're struggling with lust you might need to get rid of it that's a hard choice you might need to give up a future relationship if you've gone too far or you can't be controlled you might need to hold on to anger and give it up to god and pray that god helps you with your anger through tears because you feel like you're about to explode You might need to sacrifice your time for other people, even though you've spent all week thinking about how you want to spend your time. 
But the reality is that your will is slowly being strengthened to catch up with your new desires and your new thinking. And the reality is that those choices you make, those roadblocks you put in sin's way, will give you breathing room. So you can have time to see and dwell in how good it is to be freed from sin. And that breathing room is going to give you time that you used to spend on sin to now spend on understanding fully how good God is. So you can think like him and you can want him so that those things start catching up with your choices. Troxel says it this way. I think it's super helpful. Through God's word, we become more and more acquainted with sin's danger and its scent and its approach and its tactics and what it threatens. In fact, the nature of spiritual struggle is that the more we resist sin, the better we get to know it. The reality is that all sin promises satisfaction it cannot give. Every single sin is trying to offer you everything and it gives you nothing. It is offering filling and it gives you emptiness. But when you resist sin, you start to understand that more. You start to see the lies and the strategies that it is pulling at you. And as you reject it, you start to see them. And that helps you to make even greater and more righteous decisions with your life. But it takes time. But that's how it starts. And here's the best thing. You can have confidence you can do that. You can have confidence that your will can be strengthened. And the reason why is because God wills to strengthen your will. Paul says that in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. He says, it is the will of God that you be sanctified. God wants to strengthen you. So if you believe in Christ, if you believe that Christ died for your sins and rose again on the cross and lived a perfect life that makes you righteous before God... You can actually make the right choice and start living in how good it is to be a Christian. Because God has set that up for you. He's given you that through belief in him. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 and 12 says it this way. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It means to say no to emotions that are wrong and to say no to decisions that wouldn't honor God and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. God has given his grace to you to save you, change you, and to train you. The more you return to the gospel, the more your will will be strengthened. One of my favorite pastors, H.B. Charles, said it this way. It is the will of God to have the spirit of God use the word of God to make the children of God look like the son of God. I'll say that one more time. It is the will of God to make the spirit of God use the word of God to have the children of God look like the son of God. God is transforming you into Christ-likeness. And the reality is, as you start looking through all of these things, your thinking, your desires, and your choices to reflect God, it's not ultimately you holding on to God that's going to change. It's God holding on to you. And this is where we'll end. I read a story of a pilot, and his name was Henry Dempsey. And on a routine commercial flight, because he was a pilot, he was flying and noticed that there was a disturbance in the back of the plane. So he got up, went to investigate. And as he did, 
he noticed that the plane hit some turbulence, and as it did, the passenger door opened, and he got sucked out of the plane. The co-pilot immediately noticed and made an emergency landing. It took about 10 minutes. And as he landed the plane, and as he went to check on the disturbance, and as the emergency team went to double-check the damages, guess who they found? Henry Dempsey. And he was holding on to the side of the plane for 10 minutes. Apparently, his head was about six inches from the ground. Yet when they recovered him, they had to pry his hands off the door, and the only thing he suffered was a minor cut. That is how strong God is holding on to you. Ultimately, you are going to be in situations that feel absolutely impossible to want God or to think like God or to choose God. But no matter how difficult it seems, know this. God is never letting go. If you believe in Christ alone, you have already been given all of the evidence you need to know God is never letting go of you. No matter how difficult it sounds. And if that's the case, God will show you that he can help you do anything that would honor him. In your thinking, in your wanting, and in your choosing. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these students. Thank you so much for their attention. We just covered so much material, and we just went through so much Bible. There's just way too much uh, here to get into and to think about it all properly. But, God, you are gracious to reveal all this truth to us. You have made yourself known to us, and we love you for that. We want to know you. And, Father, for anyone here who doesn't know you or doesn't want to know you or doesn't want to make choices for you, Lord, please reveal your grace to them. Please reveal that their hard hearts are making wrong decisions that come from wrong desires that will never satisfy because they are thinking about this world in terms of self, which is so limited, and not like you, who sees everything, knows everything, is love, and is always right. Only you can provide order to our hearts. Only you can help us put the heart back together again so we can live life rightly. And Lord, we're thankful that we can live right lives in your name, for your glory, because you've provided Christ. Lord, let us rely on your holding on to us so that everything we do can be a result of the glory and glorified work that you have done in our hearts. Thank you, Father, and we pray all this in your name. Amen.